Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail... After election night, you got a result where one party won, one party lost and the majority party had control of the agenda for three years and... Today, 25 years ago, on October the 12th, 1996, New Zealand held its first election under the new electoral system, NMP. It's no overstatement to suggest the switch to MMP is one of the most significant developments in the history of electoral reform in this country. So how did this actually happen? What was functioning so badly that we decided to fundamentally change things up? And two and a half decades on, how are things actually going? Henry Cook is Stuff's chief political reporter. Over the past few weeks, he's been beavering away on a series of pieces for Stuff about the past, present and future of MMP. To start with, though, I wanted to know a bit about MMP's forerunner, First Past the Post, or FPP. I guess the first thing we should say is, it's called First Past the Post, but you didn't actually have to get past the post. I think people people hear about it and they think, oh, well, the first person to get past 50% uh, wins, but that's that's not actually the case. There's, there's, the post would move based on every electorate. Anyway, so the system the system worked by dividing New Zealand into roughly equal-sized electorates, and each electorate, uh, a variety of people would, would run, and you'd be able to vote for them. Most of the people who won were from one of two parties, Labour or National, and they would go to parliament and govern or, or be in opposition. There was no vote you had that was for the party itself. Your vote was only for the representative. This, this you know, it sounds strange to New Zealand now, but this is still how many other Westminster boxes operate now. You know, if you live in the UK, you don't get to vote for Labour. You get to vote for the Labour candidate in your area or the Tory candidate in your area or the Lib Dem candidate in your area. The uh, key thing about that to kind of recognise is that there could only ever be one uh, one winner of, of every electorate. So all the votes that did not go to the uh, to the you know all the votes that did not go to the winner were essentially wasted. Mm-hmm. And you could argue also that some of the votes that went to the winner were also wasted because it didn't matter how large the proportion of the win was. You could win with you know a five thousand vote majority. That would be just as important in Parliament as someone who won with a two-vote two, two majority because all that mattered was that one person. So zooming out here, basically, there were a series of mini-elections across the country, and the winner of each of those mini-elections would go to Parliament. For decades, the system was, you know, the system. The only one we'd had, the only one we knew. But as minor parties rose to challenge the national Labour duopoly so too did discontent about lack of representation. Even if you were winning lots of votes, you didn't get any MPs unless you won an electorate, and this led to some pretty bleak situations. It came to a head in the 1978 and 1981 elections, when the New Zealand Social Credit Party won 16% and then 21% of the vote, but were rewarded with just one MP in 78 and two in 81. And they weren't the only ones. The Values Party, which is what, what born more the Green Party out, were winning quite a lot of votes at, at some elections and were getting absolutely no representation. Bob Jones started the New Zealand Party in 1984 and, and won well above most of what the minor parties win now in elections and got absolutely no no seats in 1984. So you really, you really had to be in National or Labour to get anywhere close to power. 
And even if you were a National or Labour voter, you didn't really have a, much of a way, short of you know joining the party and becoming an MP yourself or passing agreements, of letting your distaste with one of those parties be known. Mm. You were just that was that. So when in the twentieth century does this become not even necessarily a public issue, but an issue with people who think about this kind of stuff, you know, legislative people, people who are concerned with political systems, nerds, basically. When does this raise the hackles of the nerds? It's fair to say that, you know, among political scientists, this was, was this was kind of a discussion that was always, you know, going on once, once the discipline kind of got established. It was, there were proportional systems in other places and places like Europe, especially kind of in post-war Europe. And, uh, you know, it was natural to compare New Zealand's system to theirs, but it kind of stayed there. It was pretty, um, it was pretty locked away. And obviously, the uh, the third parties, the, the minor parties, like values and social credit, were always trying to get it on the political agenda. But it never really cut through as a very serious issue. Probably what what really spurned it onto a bit more of a spotlight, though, was in 1978 and 1981, when by virtue of kind of strange electorate districts and a very tight election. National actually won government despite winning less votes than Labour. This is something that could happen uh, in an FPP because it didn't matter how much you won those those many elections by. Uh, you could quite easily win a, a you know you, you could win an election while with razor thin margins across a kind of range of, of of swing seats, which gave you more of the actual seats in the house. While your opponents could win their safer seats by massive margins, and if you added it all up could actually have more nationwide votes for Newhead. Mm. That's what happened in 1978-1991. So Robert Muldoon won three elections against Labour, but he actually only won more votes than the, one of those elections in 1975. Uh, and that definitely kind of put the issue you know, into the bloodstream. Uh, it probably helped Geoffrey Palmer, who at this time was, um, he came to, came to Parliament around this time. Was was pushing, you know, a remit had been pushing a remit forwards that Labour, if it came to power, should initiate a royal commission to kind of look at the electoral system. Palmer later described the governments of the seventies and eighties as elected dictatorships. Because there was no upper house, there was little in the way of checks and balances when it came to government decisions, and power could be easily monopolised by just a few select people. Robert Muldoon probably pushed the envelope further on that than almost anyone else, and uh, especially he was the um, not only the Prime Minister, but also the Leader of the House and the Finance Minister at some points, mm. which meant that, and this is, there's, there's great passages about this in Marilyn Rearing's book, you know, you could he, he could essentially use uh, himself and a, and a small group of MPs late at night when most people weren't paying attention to pass any law he wanted, mm. to amend any law he wanted. Uh, an extraordinary amount of power was vested in this one man. And that definitely made people a bit worried. In both 1981 and 1984, the Labour Party pledged to hold a royal commission into electoral reform. And when the party was elected in 1984, Prime Minister David Longey did just that. The commission had six members, academics, a retired judge, statisticians, and crucially, no MPs, past or present. This was at least partly due to fears the MPs' self-interest might consciously or unconsciously trump the public's interest. Over the next year and a half, the Commission went around the world looking at different electoral methods. 
It eventually alighted on a system which appeared to be flourishing in West Germany. Personalisiertes Verhältniswahlrecht, or personalised proportional representation. After World War II, a system was set up in the 50s, which essentially is, is, is you know, MMP as we know it today in Germany. West Germany was a very successful country. It was, um, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe. Uh, its economy, despite being, you know, demolished in World War II, was um, going gangbusters. And it was very hard to look at it and say, oh, look at this unstable, you know, unstable country riddled by shifting coalitions that change over time. It was, I think it was time mostly governed by, you know, either the CDU, an older kind of centre-right party, or the CSU, an older centre-left party, who are in coalitions with, you know, various various smaller parties that kind of allowed them to get, get work done mm. and, and uh, keep the lights on. So... If the shortcomings of FPP at the time were, you know, the sort of the lack of representation that you talk about, um, the potential for absolute, night, you know, nearly autocratic power, what was the theory behind MMP? How did MMP propose to correct those shortcomings? Well, the natural way it would correct the shortcomings of absolute power was by spreading the power among more people because I guess one of the things to remember about all these FPP elections is that everyone who won an FPP election uh, almost everyone got a, a majority in parliament which means they could do anything if they controlled their entire party but no one had actually won a majority of voters since 1951 Sid Holland was the last person to win an actual majority of voters. Jack Vowles as a political scientist has a great quote about this he basically says you know we're governed by minorities who think they're in majority the idea was under MMP, because you'd have this party vote and to, to get a majority, you would need to, you know, coalesce together enough parties who had actually won together a majority of that party vote. You would naturally, A, have coalitions and B, kind of restrain any single party from having uh, too much power totally vested in themselves. But I guess the other thing to remember there is the Royal Commission wasn't just focused on too much power being, you know, concentrated in, one, in you know, one party. They were also just focused on whether the, the system was actually fair or democratic for political parties that existed in it. You know, we should remember Parliament's still, you know, unitary, still centralised. People can still do a lot very fast. Still the fastest um, lawmaking in the West, as the quote goes. They were just keen to make sure that there was fairness between parties as well as obviously potential coalitions. The version of MMP the Commission recommended is in some ways very different to what we have now. It advised a threshold of 4% for a party to get into Parliament and proposed abolishing the Māori seats, saying they'd become pointless in the age of proportional representation. However, other aspects are pretty similar to what we have today. The number of MPs would rise from 99 to 120 and constituents would have two votes, one for who they wanted their electorate MP to be and one for their preferred party. Once an election was finished, the various parties would negotiate on policy and such and see whether any combination could form a block of 61 or more seats. If this happened, those participating parties would become the government. And to this day, 61 is the magic number. The Royal Commission recommended the issue be put to referendum in 1987. But when its report landed, both the Labour and National parties were mortified. Proportional representation presented a massive challenge to the almost autocratic power governments could currently wield. The report was shelved and no referendum happened, much to the disgust of recently ousted social credit MP Gary Knapp, who barricaded himself in a select committee room 
with a group of supporters, pizza and a porta potty in protest. MMP seemed dead in the water, but there was a twist. In 1987, during a live election debate, David Longy had a slip of the tongue and promised a referendum. I think there are, therefore, aspects of unfairness, which is why this government supported the move to have the Royal Commission, and we will, uh, in the next term, refer that report to a parliamentary select committee. A referendum will thereafter be held. I believe that there will probably be a public acceptance of four-year term and a modified form of proportional representation. Geoffrey Palmer maintains Longy misread his notes, while Longy claimed the notes themselves were wrong, but just about everybody agrees the promise was absolutely not planned. It was, however, made. By the time Longy stepped down as PM in 1989 and Geoffrey Palmer stepped up, the Labour caucus had more or less decided to backtrack on the referendum, and this was music to the ears of one particular person. Jim Bolger at this time, as leader of a national party, seizes on this. It's another broken promise from Labour. You know, it's another broken promise. And eventually, after quite a lot of internal scuffling, and the national party says that they will hold a referendum on kind of a menu of options of, of, of electoral reform, including MMP. Uh, Labour as well eventually say, OK, well, it's too late to do a referendum at 1990, but we'll do a referendum at 1992 as well on MMP versus FPP. So at, by the time the 1990 election comes around, both parties are promising, at some level, a referendum on, FP, on, on MMP. This is hilarious. So Geoffrey Palmer, who is the main cheerleader behind electoral reform, has the power to initiate a referendum on this, but decides that there isn't public appetite for it and shelves it. That decision gets seized upon by the opposition as a broken promise, commits to holding said referendum, despite not necessarily being in favour of it, and then the governing party seizes on the momentum that this brings apart and also commits to a referendum. So, poor old Geoffrey Palmer. Oh yeah, although I, I think it's fair to say Geoffrey Palmer, when he made the, you know, when he, when he told the public about that, I think if he, if he had had the actual power himself to do a referendum, he would have loved to. Sure. But he only had so much power in his caucus. This yep. is a very, uh, a very dark time for the Labour Party caucus. Uh, and he was also pushing, you know, Quite a, quite a barrel load of other reform. I think he probably thought at that time that, you know, maybe if I just get the Constitution Act and the uh, Bill of Rights Act and the Resource Management Act and to, and to play, we can, we can worry about MMP next time in the government. In the end, we got two referendums. The first was in 1992, where the alternative systems went up against each other. MMP won that one handily with 85% of the vote. The second at the 1993 election was a straight runoff, MMP versus FPP. It was a lot closer, but in the end, MMP was first past the... No, that's confusing. MMP won. At the 1996 election, New Zealand would have a new electoral system. I think it's probably fair to say that if this hadn't happened in the early 90s, it probably never would have happened. The, the, the context of the early 90s was one where People who had voted for both National and Labour felt absolutely betrayed mm. by political parties. They wanted something that punished political parties, and it was, you know, it was very obvious by, from how how much people didn't like MMP who were in power that they would see MMP as a punishment. You didn't even know all the details of you know how an overhang seat would work to know that Labour and National didn't like MMP. And if you didn't like Neighbour and National, which is a lot of people at this point, I mean, there was a poll which is about 85% of people thought there was corruption in politics, mm. then you would, you know, 
gravitate towards MMP. Yeah, you make an interesting point here. Actually, Winston, you quote Winston Peters here making an interesting point that you know the, the governing parties in the eighties and nineties brought brought this unwanted electoral change upon themselves by essentially abandoning their election manifestos in favour of kind of like yeah. ad hoc rule, which they could do under FPP. The suggestion being that FPP and the absolute power that it bestows upon a party doesn't lend itself well to accountability. Absolutely. Um, which is funny because people make the same complaints about, you know, MMP and unaccountable parties, being, you know, governments being made in back rooms. But yeah, I mean, the, you, you have to remember that Labour have been elected, you know, as, a, as a, we're kind of not really a well formed economic policy uh but, but a lot of a lot of the election i mean people say it was basically on foreign policy and on not being well done and had then proceeded to tear up a lot of kind of what had you know made the new zealand economy you know work for the last 30 years tear up a lot of the, the things like agricultural subsidies change employment law or start changing employment law uh and national had you know jim bolger had gone to the election in 1990 promising kind of a stop to all that uh uh, not not quite a return to Muldoonism, but definitely a bit of a breather from relentless reform, a, a return to the decent society. Then he got elected, um, you know, in his words, the, the books were in a worse shape than he thought. They had to recapitalise back in New Zealand. And that meant a lot of budget cuts amid, amid the mother of all budgets, um, where welfare was slashed kind of dramatically, going back on the promise to uh, get rid of a superannuation surtax, and, you know, of course, National also basically destroyed union law, as it was at that point. They, they, the Employment Contracts Act was the biggest reform to the, the, the way that employment worked in, in, in decades. So by the, you know, if you were someone who had voted for Labour because you wanted a bit of change, then you voted for National because you wanted the change to stop, you just felt, a lot of people just felt absolutely betrayed. In the three years between elections, minor parties began to sprout up. On the left of the political spectrum, the Alliance, headed by former Labour MP Jim Anderton, took flight. On the right, another former Labour MP, Richard Preble, set up the Association of Consumers and Taxpayers, the ACT Party. In the centre, United New Zealand was headed by yet another former Labour MP and Clive Mathewson, and boasted among its ranks the then Ohariu MP Peter Dunn. And in some other mystifying place on the electoral spectrum emerged the king of MMP, Winston Peters and New Zealand First. National wins uh, the most seats, active there as well, but not enough for National and Act to govern together. Labour and the Alliance, which is the party that kind of, you can kind of think of it as the Greens plus another left-wing party at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Labour and the Alliance are also there. They don't have enough to govern together either. What's in the middle is New Zealand First. New Zealand First can govern with either of those groups but it can also but the key thing is it doesn't need act uh if it goes with national mm. winston and jim bolger can govern just them together national and uh new zealand first and govern they, they can get over the line whereas labor and new zealand first together cannot get over the line a lot the alliance would need to be involved this is kind of like a 2017 exactly where yeah. new zealand first would need to go with labor and the greens not just national by itself uh and that that seems to be a big part of the reason that Winston Peters, after eight weeks of negotiations, ends up going with National, that he can't quite see himself being a part of a three-headed beast, but instead a, a two-headed beast. Peters was duly rewarded, securing the roles of Deputy Prime Minister and Treasurer, a role senior to the Minister of Finance. But within two years, this fragile coalition had imploded. 
in a coup Jenny Shipley ousted Bolger in 1998, and Peters was sacked from Cabinet shortly afterwards. People were very upset with how things had gone, and Helen Clark is probably the key person who turns that around, despite, you know, in the past being quite against the MP herself. In 1999, they run a, a, a campaign which is very focused on accountability. It's a, it's a campaign that's basically, there's a you know, famous credit card of pledges that basically says, you know, these are the, the three or four policies that we will definitely do in our term, they're non-negotiable. Um, if you vote for us, you'll get these and you won't get some crazy other ideas. Um, and if you want these ideas, you know, give your party vote to us. Mm. And she's able to cobble together a progressive coalition. So there's no Winston Peters involved in 1999. She goes into coalition with the alliance. With that coalition, she's able to, to lead what most people, you know, describe as a pretty stable government. Things don't go crazy. And, and I think that really starts the process of MMP becoming much more a part of the furniture and this kind of a radical disrupting force. You know, sure. Clark leads for... Clark leads for nine years. Key comes in. Across the country, they have voted for change. He works out kind of similar small, small coalition deals with parties that, you know, never have too much power on their own right and he kind of has options to go around. He does nine years of that, or eight years of that in Billings for the last year. That, I think, locks at MMP as much more just the kind of regular way of voting rather than a force that's going to, you know, create these these constitutional nightmares. Twenty-five years on from our first MMP election, every subsequent government, bar the current one, has been a coalition of some description. In a certain sense, MMP has succeeded. But in others, it sort of hasn't. There are just five parties in the parliament at present, the fewest there's ever been under MMP, and many fewer than in other countries with proportional systems. In the Netherlands, for example, there are 17 parties in Parliament. But by and large, Henry Cook reckons, from his point of view, the system does function pretty well. I think MMP has many, many, many problems, um, but it has served New Zealand reasonably well in terms of keeping us from a world where there's two major parties who are increasingly isolated from each other because they live in different parts of the country and their voters live in different parts of the country. Mm. There's a way that having that party vote means you can't ignore any part of the country. You have to you have to care about what people all over New Zealand think about your party and I think that makes governments a little bit more responsible and responsive. It might make them also a little bit too cautious. You know, there's a good argument there. But Overall, looking around, I think probably MMP is, for New Zealand, you know, pretty good. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Adrian Holley engineered this episode and Alexia Russell produced it. And thanks to Stuff's Henry Cook. Check out his series on MMP on stuff.co.nz. Matewa. Matewa.